In the book of Proverbs, chapter 25, verse 25, there's a phrase that goes like this. Like cool water to a weary soul is good news from a far country. Like cool water to a weary soul is gospel. That's the word, is the gospel good news from a far country. Why is it that when we share the gospel with someone, it doesn't always seem like a cool water to a weary soul. Sometimes it seems like a pretty contrived conversation. Sometimes it's uh, um, a bit invasive. And sometimes, in best cases, it's another conversation entirely. Like, how did we get on to this? Now you've went and gone spiritual on me. So we've not had a great deal of success in the last 30, 40, 50 years in presenting that cool water to a weary soul. Why? Elizabeth Newton was a graduate student at Stanford University in 1990 when she devised a game involving two players. One was a tapper, the other was a listener. She gave the tappers a short canon of songs that everyone would know and asked them to pick one of those songs and tap out the rhythm to that song without moving their lips or saying anything to see whether or not the listener could guess what the song was. So for instance, it would be Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Got it? Or Star Spangled Banner. Or Mary Had a Little Lamb. At the end of the research, there were 120 songs tapped out. The listeners guessed three. Something was lost in translation. And here's the best part. Before the tapper began to tap, she asked them, how often do you think the listener will get it right? And they guessed 50% of the time. In other words, the tappers guessed that the listener would discern the song one in every two times, when in fact, they discerned it one in every 40 times. It's what Elizabeth Newton called the curse of knowledge. She says, once a person knows something, they can't imagine what it's like to not know it. And so they just start tapping out what they're trying to get across, and they get flabbergasted that the person listening cannot discern this. To them, it's all perfectly clear, but to the listener, it sounds like some bizarre Morse code that they can't interpret. And when I read the story, I thought to myself, this is something like our trouble with the gospel. Once you've been a Christian for so long, you cannot imagine what it's like to not know what Christians know. And so you step into situations and you just start talking like a Christian and you can't understand why people cannot discern what you're saying. To you, it is perfectly clear. You talk about the forgiveness of sins. You talk about Jesus dying on the cross, about how the resurrection means you can have new life, about the blood of Jesus cleansing people from their sins. And to you, all of this makes perfect sense. But to the person listening, it sounds like some bizarre Morse code. We don't even know anything like that in our lives. So as a result, the church has 
become sort of bipolar. Part of the church is, is, is busy trying to find more creative ways to tap. Maybe if I just can take this message and hide it in rap music, or I can find this good, wholesome Christian movie, or I can bring a movie star, or maybe a great athlete in front of people, then they will tell this story. And then people will get interested, and then they'll hear the story, and they'll want to become a Christian. And it works just enough to keep doing it. But as I say, we're not making a lot of progress. Others have decided that because the culture is so different, they just stop tapping altogether. They've invested themselves in things like community development and disaster relief and help for the poor and for the oppressed, and they never really get back to talking about the gospel. The mentality there is, well, maybe if we can just do enough good works, then they'll ask us, oh, why the difference? But that doesn't happen enough. I want to suggest that maybe something else is wrong. The gap is maybe not in the interest that the public has with our message of the gospel. The gap may be in the credibility of the gospel itself. The reason people cannot discern the gospel when we tap it out is because they are no longer familiar with the tune. I might as well go down to the nursing home and tap out, put a ring on it, and hoping they say, Beyonce. <laughs> it's a nursing home. They're 90 years old. They've never heard the song. So it doesn't matter how creative we get in our presentation of the gospel if we don't re-examine what the gospel itself is. So when we start talking about the gospel, what exactly are we talking about? People today are not that interested in going to heaven after they die. They don't think they're dying in the next few days, and they're not that interested in having their sins forgiven by a holy God, though they're not saying they haven't done anything wrong. I mean, Donald Trump says, I haven't done anything worth asking forgiveness for. Donald Trump says this. So for the most part, he kind of summarizes what is the feel. So it does no good to talk to people about going to heaven after they die and about having sins forgiven if that's not really where the anxiety is. When Jesus came preaching, the kingdom of heaven is near, repent and believe the gospel. None of those two things are involved in there. He's not talking about going to heaven and he's not talking about being forgiven of our sins. He has an entirely different message. The kingdom of God is breaking in upon you now. It is in front of you. It is around you. It is upon you. It is right next to you. So turn now and believe that the kingdom is near. The odd thing is that when Jesus came preaching the gospel in Mark chapter 1, most of what Christians consider the gospel to be hadn't happened yet. The death and resurrection was three years later. So what gospel did he preach? 
Turns out one has to go back to the Old Testament to find that out. The word gospel, baser, in Hebrew is mentioned 30 times in the Old Testament. 16 of them occur in two, four books, Samuel and Kings. Of the other 14 references, seven occur in the prophet Isaiah alone. Of those seven references, five occur in only three passages. Those three passages in the book of Isaiah, the sermons of Isaiah, give us a pretty clear picture of what the gospel was in Jesus's mind when he came preaching the gospel. And I warn you, it's not going to sound like the one you're familiar with. In the first one is Isaiah chapter 40. It's in verse 9 through 11 if you're keeping score. And the background there is that Israel is in exile. They've spent 70 years as prisoners of Babylon. In the words of Isaiah, they are trapped in pits, they are hidden away in dungeons, and there is no one to rescue them. In the words of Isaiah, they cannot see and they cannot hear. Sometimes that's a spiritual condition, but just as often it's a physical condition because that's what Babylonians did to captives. They put their eyes out. And suddenly in the midst of their despair, Isaiah 40 says someone runs up to a mountain and shouts at the top of his lungs, Israel, here is your God. They haven't heard of God in 70 years. And now someone is suddenly saying, here, God has arrived. Or as one translation puts, look, it's God. He is coming with strong arms to save you. He is coming with compassion. He will pick you up and hold you and carry you like a shepherd carries sheep close to his heart. Can you imagine being in prison that long and suddenly someone has the audacity to say what no one believes is true, God sees you and he's coming. The second time the word appears is in Isaiah chapter 52. It appears there twice. In Isaiah 52, Israel, still in captivity, their streets are in ruins. Their cities are burned to the ground. There is nothing left of their streets and their cities. Not only that, but Israel's God is being mocked in the public sector. Israel's faith is being persecuted by people who don't believe in it. And suddenly the prophet says, wait a minute, I hear the feet of someone running along top the ridge of a mountain and he has news and he is shouting at the top of his lungs, your God reigns. And even though the streets are still burnt and still in chaos, the prophet has the nerve to say something nobody believes and he won't be quiet. God has seen the condition of our nation and God is on the way to save us. Our fortunes are about to change. When he saves us, we are going to rise up and rebuild the cities that have been destroyed. The third time it occurs is in Isaiah chapter 61. 
Israel is still in captivity. They're at the end of their 70 years. They've been slaves for so long. They've had children, now grandchildren, that have only known slavery. The condition is internal. It's not just that they're slaves. It's that they see themselves as slaves, worthless. And suddenly the prophet gets up in front of people and says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me and he has anointed me to proclaim the gospel. There's the word to the poor. To set captives free, to open the eyes of the blind, to release those who are in prison. So he says, take off your despair and put on a crown of joy. Take off your oppression And live up to what God has called you. Come out of your darkness and live pure lives. Are you still there? If you put all three of those passages together, you find the same message being repeated each time. And that, it turns out, is the gospel Jesus would have preached. It has about four parts. One, God sees you. He hears you. He knows what's wrong. He is aware. He is watching you. Two, God is on the way. God has made promises that he is about to keep. He has found someone who lives among you and he is gonna raise that person up and that person will lead you out. Three, So rise up, lift up your voice, burst out into songs of joy because for your future is about to change. Everything will be different when God arrives. When I put those four parts in front of me, I find a pattern that looks like this. There's a predicament that someone is in. In the midst of that predicament, someone makes an announcement. God is coming. God is on the way. When people hear the announcement long enough, there is an awakening. They lift up their voice. They burst into songs of joy. They walk out of their darkness and begin to live pure lives. And then over time, there is a permanent change. So the gospel, it turns out, is these four movements played out in the scripture again and again and again. Are you aware of the difference between um, a narrative and a story? Do you know the difference? Are you listening? Do you know the difference between a narrative and a story? All right, we'll start from the beginning. Do you watch Hallmark? (laughs) Admit it. I'm married. I've seen more than one. Far more than I want to. Love does strange things, man. What I've noticed in Hallmark is the story is always different, but the narrative is always the same. The narrative is the structure. It's the movement. It's the frame, the chassis that carries the story. 
The story are the characters, the drama, the actions, the reactions. It's all the stuff that fits in between. So the narrative is the flow of it, and the story is the details. Which is why Hallmark is such a perfect example, because even though there are many movies, they're all the same. It does not matter. Boy meets girl. Boy and girl become friends. Girl plays hard to get. Boy and girl fall into love. Nobody dares say it. Boy and girl have a fight three-fourths of the way through. But it's never a fight. It's just a misunderstanding between two innocent characters. Scene five, boy and girl make up. Boy kisses girl, last three minutes of the movie, the end. That's the whole thing. This, am I wrong? This, why you watch that? This is so predictable. I can walk into the room and Hallmark is on, and we're in the first five minutes, and I can go, mm, him, her, done, movie's over. Because once you've seen the narrative, the story is only the details. Now, I've just told you how one might read the scriptures, not like Hallmark. You read the scriptures as narrative but every story is different. Underneath every story is the same structure played out again and again and again and again. From the beginning of scriptures to the end of scriptures. At the beginning of scripture, Israel is in captivity in Egypt. God finds a deliverer. He takes this deliverer with the people to the edge of the Red Sea where it says in Exodus 14, the wind begins to blow. They feel a breeze for the first time. He has told them, God is gonna lead us out. Nobody believes it, but there on the edge of the sea, they start to feel the wind blowing and a few of them are guessing for the first time, something is about to change. Moses steps into the water before it is parted and while he is walking, the wind picks up momentum, splits the Red Sea and they come out on the other side dry and a new nation, the end. Ain't that a story? But it follows the same pattern. Israel is in a conflict with Philistines and they're terrified. They're afraid to fight them. There's a 10 foot dude who should be playing basketball, but he's fighting in a war. Israel looks at them and they're terrified. Suddenly, a 12-year-old boy says, I'll take him on. Nobody 
hiding behind him is believing this stuff. The 12-year-old boy reaches down, picks up five stones, and he starts to rattle them together while he puts them in his pocket and he holds his sling. And he is walking straight at the giant without taking his eyes off of him. And before the giant can finish his taunts, he's already loaded the sling and he whips one, hits the giant, knocks him dead. Now... Israel's into believing. The impossible has just happened. And the war has changed. Israel comes flying out of their trenches and they're ready to run to the front of the line. Nice you could join us. Are you with me? The same narrative is portrayed again and again. Desert of sin, we don't have anything to eat. The Lord says, go to bed. You'll wake up in the morning and there will be bread on the ground. Everyone laughs, but then they go to bed and the next morning they wake up and there is bread on the ground. And this continues for 40 years until Israel leaves the wilderness. The same narrative is played out again and again and again and again all the way through scripture. So when you get into the gospels and Mark says Jesus came preaching the gospel, even though the death and resurrection had never happened yet, this narrative was deeply embedded in Israel's mind. The way that Jesus will proclaim the gospel in every situation is by encountering someone who is in a predicament. They're either possessed by demons, they're just lost their son, they're in a boat on the sea and there's a storm, there's 5,000 people with not enough to eat, someone is dead, Jesus steps into the predicament and watches what is happening. Once he sees the predicament, he utters something or he does something to them that is gonna change their situation. When he says it and they believe him, their fortunes have changed. 5,000 people eat. The dead are raised. A boy who lives in a cemetery with supernatural strength breaking chains has the demon cast out and he is rejoined to his family. He goes back into the village that was afraid of him. Everything is different when Jesus encounters the predicament. Are you tracking? Say, what difference does this make? I think this is how people are saved today. I think every one of us knows somebody in a predicament. Isolation, dis-ease, bondage or addiction, fear. 
shame, guilt. It has a lot of symptoms. But one root cause, sin. The problem with sin is not just that it violates one of God's laws. The problem with sin is that it wrecks your life. It isn't your life after that you have to worry about first. It's your life now. It's expensive. The saying is, wise people do it once, what fools do it last. It takes people so long to catch on to the ravages of the disease or to even admit it. But these people are all around us. And if we really knew what their predicament was, we would be able to say something or do something that targeted that predicament. You see, this, this taught me something that I was doing wrong in sharing the gospel. I was trained to start talking before I listened. I was trained to have talking points in my pocket and to try and manipulate a conversation so that I could get over to these talking points. And, and not only does that not work, that isn't even the gospel. That is not a cup of cool water to a weary soul. That's a sermon to someone who can't wait for me to shut up. The truth is, I don't know what the gospel is until I've listened. What I know is that God sees them. God is aware. God hears their cry. And I know God has made promises to that person. They don't believe them. They think that they've ruled themselves out. They're disqualified. But I know God wants things for that person that they're afraid to get. They don't think they deserve them, but God still wants that for them. But I don't have words for that. I don't even know what that is unless I get into a room and I live with them for a while. So spreading the gospel is not something evangelists do. It's something shepherds do because it requires people to listen before they speak. It requires that people discern before they start unloading stuff. Are you tracking? You're quiet again. Another word for this is it requires you know them. And you can't know them in a week. And you can't know them when you show up with things to say. We can only know them when we listen and we try to discern what 
does God want for this person now? Only then am I able to speak or in the words of a shepherd, feed. I don't know what camp you're in. I don't know what your experience with sharing the gospel has been. I don't know how, how afraid you are, how unprepared, unqualified you feel. But I know that you already know people who need the gospel. And by the way, while I'm on it, if this is what the gospel is, this is not something that is just for people that are, mm, how do the evangelicals like to say it, lost. This is for everybody. Because the truth is, church, I know for every one lost person who needs the gospel, I know 10 Christians who are diseased, who are lonely and ashamed and afraid and addicted Christians. So to gospel someone is not to create categories where there are none saved and lost. No, it is simply to bring the good news of God into the situation after we listen. God sees you and he knows you and God is on the way making promises you wouldn't believe. So rise up, burst forth in joy. Everything is about to change for you. And the hardest thing for you to do is to keep saying that when people won't believe it because they're still here. You'll be tempted to quit. You must not. So think of the people around you. Don't think of the people you need to get to know to spread the gospel. You have enough right now. It's the people that God has called you to shepherd. If I could um, get you to just for a moment close your eyes, I want us to focus on those people. Maybe the best thing for you to do right now would be to identify two or three people that you work with or you live with or they're in the marketplace, you know them, two or three people that you know by name. You see them regularly. They're already within your sphere of influence. They already come to you for something. It does not matter whether they're followers of Jesus or not. They're in your circle. Next to each one of those names, can you describe what their situation is? It's their conflict, their struggle, their anxiety. Sometimes it's brought on by their own doing, and just as often it's what others have done to them. But they're in that situation now, and it doesn't seem like they're ever going to get out. 
and you want so much more for them. Next to each name, describe that situation the best of your ability. Now, what has God said about them that they don't know? What has God promised that they would never believe? What has God done that would change everything if they knew it? What does God want for that person that maybe they don't think they deserve? This week, you'll probably see them. Would you tell them? You'll have to find the appropriate way. You'll have to be not so invasive about it. But if there is a way for you to say that to those people, would you do it? Jesus, these messages that are being formulated right now in the minds of your people, breathe life into them so they are not just dead words falling to the ground, but so that they have life in spirit. I pray you, God, would architect the environment. You would make the person that we're speaking to ready to hear. God, we will will damage it if we force it. We need you to go ahead of us. And then please give us courage. Because we do not have enough. Yeah.